There is a, a story of a man who could not decide what side he wanted to fight for during the American Civil War. So as a compromise, he put on the coat of the North and the pants of the South. And guess what happened? He was shot at by soldiers from both the North and the South. In his, in his attempt to, to play both sides, he got shot at by both sides. That word compromise conjures up all, all kinds of, of mixed feelings, especially in our, our current political climate. Typically, when we hear that word, we feel as if in some way we are, are selling out and betraying our principles. However, compromise can be a positive thing. It can be a, a, a needful thing. Oftentimes, for the sake of peace and unity, we might have to compromise. We might have to give up some of our desires and our, our preferences so that we can come to some type of mutual agreement. And this tends to be the case in maintaining friendships and marriages and churches. Compromise is a give and take and it can be a good thing. But compromise can also be a negative thing if it causes us to depart from godly biblical principles and values. Trading the truth of God for a lie. For then it becomes damaging and destructive. This is what happens to many Christians today who are playing both sides, so to speak, wearing the coat of the North and the pants of the South. This morning we are continuing through chapter 2 of Revelation. Two weeks ago, we looked at the church in Ephesus, which from all appearances seemed to be a great church, a busy church, a doctrinally sound church. But they were also described by Jesus, who knows everything about the church, as being an unloving church. Jesus warned this church about their unloving attitude. But he also told them that their love could be restored if they remembered the kind of love they once had. 
if they repented from their unloving ways, and if they repeated those loving actions which were once a priority in their lives. Because sometimes the loving actions come before the loving feelings. Unfortunately, as Jesus had warned, history tells us this unloving church ceased to be a church. Last week, we looked at the church in Smyrna. This was a suffering church. A church that persevered through severe persecution and endured extreme poverty because they identified with Jesus Christ. Essentially, this was a church that was stripped of everything but Jesus. Jesus was all that they had, and through it all, they discovered that Jesus was all they needed. Jesus described them as a spiritually rich church. And today, there is still a Christian presence in Smyrna, which is now known as Izmir, Turkey. Our next church on the postal route, if you'll put that up there, uh, Kim, is the church in Pergamum. Do you see the slide up there? I think it starts out with, we started out, uh, well, we actually started over here in, in uh, Patmos. And then, yeah, right there, yes. And then uh, it went to Ephesus. This is a postal route. Then to Smyrna. And now we find ourselves in Pergamum. <clears throat> the city of Pergamum was located about 75 miles north of Smyrna. Built on a thousand foot hill. You had that slide? And at the time of John's writing, it was the capital of Asia Minor. Unlike the, the seaport cities of Ephesus and Smyrna, which were known as being major commercial and trade centers in the region, the city of Pergamum was about 20 miles inland. It had no seaport. And it was not on a major trade route. And therefore, it was of little commercial significance. Instead, Pergamum was known for its culture. Its culture. With its art galleries and theaters and gymnasiums, sports arenas, Roman baths. A stadium which could seat 50,000 spectators. And they had a university. Pergamum was also known for its massive library. At that time, believed to be the second largest library in the world. Only behind the library in Alexandria, Egypt. 
the library in Pergamum maintained some 200,000 volumes of handwritten literature. In fact, it was reportedly the place where parchment was invented. Up until that time, all writing had been done on papyrus. Papyrus which was made from the reeds that grew on the banks of the Nile River. The Egyptians had a monopoly on the making of papyrus, and they had their great library in Alexandria. The story goes, and I'm not making this up, the story goes the king of Pergamum, in an attempt to enhance the reputation of his own library, tried to hire away the chief librarian from Alexandria. But the king of Egypt got wind of it. So he had this poor librarian put into prison to keep him from leaving. And then he cut off the supply of papyrus to Pergamum. Well, the library in Pergamum had to do something. So they came up with a new process by which the skins of animals could be pressed and treated to retain ink for writing. And that was the invention of parchment. All because of an international incident that involved a librarian. Go figure. It's too crazy to make up. So I think it is fair to say that the word, more specifically, the written word, was very important to the people of Pergamum who took great pride in their massive library. The people in Pergamum could also be described as a religious people. Just like the city of Smyrna, the city of Pergamum was highly devoted to emperor worship, which was mandated by Rome. In fact, they were the first to build a temple in Asia Minor for that purpose. And if a person did not participate in this cultic practice and once a year say, Caesar is Lord, they were persecuted and likely executed. Not only did the people in this city engage in emperor worship, but there was also a very strong Greek culture there, reflected by massive temples to several of their Greek gods to include a famous temple to Zeus. The city of Pergamum also had a medical center. You have that slide? Which was based on the worship of Asclepius. Hopefully I said that right. Asclepius. Asclepius 
was the Greek god of medicine and healing. And he held a serpent entwined staff, which remains a symbol of medicine even today. You might sit on the side of an ambulance. In this city, there was a huge temple to this God of healing. And it was reported that those who suffered were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple with non-poisonous snakes that were kept there. In the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of the snakes that slithered over the ground on which the person lay. And the touch of the snake was thought to be the touch of Asclepius. And the touch was believed to bring healing. Thousands of people flocked to this place Each year for healing. Thousands. And that begs the question. Were there any healings from the worship of this false God? History tells us that there were many who were reportedly healed there. To include Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was said to have been cured of a lung problem. And that brings up a really good point. As we will see later in the book of Revelation, Satan is also able to produce his own Miracles to deceive people for the purpose of drawing them away from the one true God. Satan is extremely cunning. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Appearing as an angel of light. And if necessary, he can use a little supernatural power. Do a little good. Share a little truth. All leading towards a big deception. And an even bigger fall. In Pergamum, for a people who prided themselves in being very well educated and cultured, A people who seemed to cherish the written word, they were duped and deceived to worship false gods. So that's the background of Pergamum. Now let's dig into our passage. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2 and we'll begin with verse 12. Revelation 2 beginning with verse 12. Are you there? Okay. And it reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Let's stop there. 
In this verse, Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And I think that description could refer to a couple of things. First, a symbol of power for Rome was the sword. And Jesus could be reminding his church that Rome may be powerful, but he is much more powerful. His sword is very sharp. It is razor sharp. And it is double-edged. Secondly, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, it is the Word of God that is often described as being sharper than any double-edged sword. And if we go back to verse 16 in chapter 1 and verse 16 in chapter 2, we see references of the same thing. Where Jesus is symbolically described as having a sword coming from his mouth. That sword being his word. So for a people who appeared to value the word, the church in Pergamum had better pay attention to these words which come from the Lord himself. For it is he who has the ultimate power, not Rome, and it is he who has the very last word. Yes, Jesus continues and says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Let's stop. Right out the gate, Jesus explains that Satan is not in hell. Hopefully that's not surprising. Satan is not in hell. Here we're told he has his throne in the city of Pergamum. Which I suspect was a reference to the false worship of multiple Greek gods and the worship of the Roman emperor. In essence, the Lord may be saying that Satan had real influence in this capital city of Asia Minor. And he was able to exercise his deceptive power there. But be that may, the Lord commends the church in Pergamum for holding fast to his name. Despite the fact they lived in such a difficult city, the church in Pergamum would not link the name of Jesus to any other pagan gods in the city. Jesus wasn't one of just many gods. He was the one and only true God. Secondly, the Lord commended this church because they did not renounce their faith. 
they would not deny their faith in Jesus, even in the midst of their persecution. If you notice, Jesus mentioned the name Antipas. Described as the Lord's faithful witness. There isn't a lot which is known about Antipas. But according to church tradition, Antipas was thought to have been the first Christian martyr in Asia Minor. It was told that Antipas was brought to the temple of Caesar and commanded to say out loud, Caesar is Lord. But instead, Antipas shouted, Jesus alone is Lord. A Roman official told him, Antipas, don't you know that the whole world is against you? To which he replied, then Antipas is against the whole world. Antipas was then put into a large brass kettle shaped like a bull. A fire was lit under it and he was roasted to death. So this church was in real danger from the outside world. It was real. But they didn't try to escape. They chose to remain in the danger, not shrinking away from it. But there was another danger that was creeping inside the church. A very real danger. And it was a danger that comes from compromising with the world. Listen to what Jesus says beginning with verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. You also have some who in the same way Hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Stop there. Despite their stand in the face of fiery persecution, they were not faultless. The church in Pergamum was described by Jesus as being a compromising church. For apparently, there were groups who had infiltrated this church with their false teaching. And some members in this church, not all of them, accepted these teachings. In this passage, Jesus mentioned the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Let's start with Balaam. If you remember, back in Numbers chapters 23 and 24, Balaam was a wicked prophet. 
who was hired by Balak. Okay? Balaam was hired by Balak. Balak was the king of Moab. And he hired Balaam to curse Israel. King Balak was fearful of the Israelites because he heard what had happened in Egypt. He heard about the Red Sea. He heard about the fall of Jericho. And King Balak wanted wanted God's people gone. So he hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. And on three separate occasions, God prevented Balaam from doing it. So the prophet Balaam told King Balak, here's what you do instead. If you can't beat them, join them. That was his advice. If you can't beat them, join them. Take some of your pretty pagan girls and have them parade before the men of Israel, tempting them and seducing them into sexual immorality and intermarriage. And since these women were worshipers of false gods and pagan idols, they will also introduce false worship and pagan practices into the tribes of Israel. Unfortunately, this plan worked way too well. And God's people were corrupted because they compromised. So what does this mean for the church in Pergamum? These people who had infiltrated the church were in effect saying, there's nothing wrong by compromising with Rome and our pagan neighbors. What's the big deal? What's the harm in saying Caesar is Lord once a year? It's only three little words. Caesar is Lord. I mean, everybody else is doing it. And you saw what happened to Antipas. If it will help us to be liked by those outside the church, then there's nothing wrong with compromising God's principles and values and joining them. Boy, is this relevant today. In the church, there are people who are being seduced 
to compromise the principles and the values found in the Word of God with the immoral culture they live in. There are people in churches today who see nothing wrong with engaging in behaviors that are completely contrary to the Word of God. Today, there are entire mainstream denominations that affirm certain immoral behaviors that are clearly spoken against in the Bible. It is a compromise of God's perfect standards. And here it was occurring in Pergamum. The Lord also mentioned another group called the Nicolaitans. This this is the same group Mentioned by Jesus when addressing the Ephesians. Nico means power. And laity means people. So these Nicolaitans may have tried to exercise power over the people. Falsely teaching that people had to go through them. Or... To go through layers of people to get access to God. My guess is they were similar to the Gnostics. And there were several groups of them who claimed to have a special relationship with God. Having special knowledge from God. And if you wanted an inside track with God then people had to go through them. So probably these two self-serving groups worked together to draw Christians back into the corruption of the world, compromising their biblical principles and values, replacing the perfect standards of God's Word with their own distorted teaching and their man-made philosophy. And instead of the church getting into the world, the world had gradually and subtly creeped into the church. I like what Charles Swindoll has to say about compromise of God's standards in the church. He says that compromise never occurs quickly. And it is often the first small step towards total disobedience. Using a nautical illustration, he explains that when a ship drifts off course, it's usually not because someone suddenly pulls the wheel to starboard or to port. Most often, invisible currents and winds gradually and subtly move the ship off course. And before the ship's crew know it, the jagged rocks of the shoreline are ripping into it. The great evangelist D.L. Moody once said, 
The place for a ship is in the sea. But God help the ship if the sea gets into it. The sea got into the church in Pergamum. They compromised God's perfect standards with the world's corrupt and immoral values. And they were dangerously drifting off course. Instead of fixing their eyes on the simple truth found in God's word, they compromised by adding their own truth and by subtracting from God's truth. They were in danger both doctrinally and morally. But Jesus had a course correction for them. Look at verse 16. He says, Therefore, based on what I just, based on what I just told you, therefore, repent. Or else... I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. There were some in this church who wanted to be accepted and liked by the culture around them by compromising God's standards. And Jesus said to them, repent. Stop it. Stop what you are doing. Turn around and take God's word seriously. Take the necessary actions to remove the false teaching and the false teachers as well from your midst. The compromise has to end now. Or else. To Jesus, living in Satan's town was no excuse for these compromising and lackadaisical Christians in Pergamum. Repent. This church felt the Roman sword, but an unrepentant church would feel the sword of Christ. Jesus would discipline his church if they did not repent. He gave them a stern warning he would do so. But he also made an encouraging appeal. Look at verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Okay, I have said on a, on a few occasions, when it comes to 
interpreting Scripture. Before we can understand what a passage means for us in the here and now, we must first understand what the passage meant to the original readers back then and there. Makes sense, right? This is one of those passages that probably made complete sense to the original readers. But for us today, it's somewhat of a head-scratcher. Just being honest, it's a head-scratcher. Surely this appeal is to all of us, it's to anyone who has ears, right? That's what he says. And to the one who overcomes, that speaks to being a, a true believer. Those who are not compromising God's standards, he says they will receive hidden manna. What is hidden manna? I'm not entirely sure. I know that God fed the Israelites with manna while they were wandering in the wilderness. I know that. You know that. I know a pot of manna was taken and placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark was a symbol of God's unique presence with His people. And I know that Jesus said He was bread from heaven. He was manna. So I can only guess, and it is a guess, that Jesus promises to give those who overcome a source of spiritual nourishment and strength which is found only in Him. That's a guess. The second promise is a white stone. With a new name written on it. (sighs) I will say, I know white marble was reportedly mined in Pergamum. But I don't think anyone truly knows what Jesus meant by its mention here. But there are some really good ideas. Let me share those. In the ancient world, the use of a white stone had many associations. When voting, a white stone meant yes, and a black stone meant no. A white stone could be a ticket to a banquet, a sign of friendship, or given as a sign of of acquittal in a court of law. Jesus may have had any one of these things in mind or something else in mind. But at the the very least, at the very least, we know that it, it has the assurance of some type of blessing and privilege. I feel safe in saying that. 
one idea behind the new name, this, this name it's only known by the person who receives this, is it shows that, that there is some intimate relationship we have with God. When a couple is, is close, they often have pet names for each other. I've never had a pet name. Have I, Trish? I don't think so. Bob? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's as close as I get. Yeah. But, but, but couples, when they're close, they have these, these, these pet names for each other. And that could be the idea here. Just, it's just a description of intimacy. Another idea is simply the assurance it gives of our heavenly destination. Your name is there. It's waiting for you. It's as if your reservation has been made. Your name has been written on a white stone. You have a reservation. Maybe there's another idea. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, this, this message from Jesus was a course correction of sort to a church that was drifting off course trying to play both sides. The church in Pergamum did not run from the city where Satan had a strong influence. They did not shrink back from the dangers, the dangers posed to them from the outside. But from the inside, some in this congregation had compromised God's standards and values, compromised God's truth for standards and values that were not from God. They did not recognize the danger that had subtly and gradually creeped into their midst, causing them to drift off course. We live in a time and a place where it is so easy to compromise biblical standards and principles and values, justifying and making excuses for our attitudes and our behaviors that are clearly opposed to God's expressed will for us. It is so easy to play both sides, just to be accepted and liked by those who follow the values in this corrupt and immoral and lost world. But we cannot give in. For if we do, we are no different from the outside as a church. We become a church just like the world. And as a consequence, we have no witness to those outside the church. Remember, the world is watching us. And how can we say, how can we say to a lost person, God can change your life if our life is no 
different than theirs. So if you and I are guilty of living a compromised Christian life so that you can do what you want to do, if you have lowered God's biblical standards in your life just to be liked and accepted by those in the world, Jesus calls you and me to repent, to stop it, and to stop it now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for the example that is given to us in the church at Pergamum. And Father, I will be the first to admit it is so easy. It is so easy to compromise your standards and your principles and your values with those in this world. Father, forgive me. Forgive us. Father, give us a zeal and a passion and a burden to live according to your word, to follow you, to live a life that is pleasing to you, to live a life that is separate from this corrupt and immoral and lost world. Father, you tell us you are holy. You are separate. And we are to live holy lives as well. Separate from the world. Help us, Lord God, to be true to you and true to your word. May you be honored and glorified in this church amongst your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh. Oh. I felt my back seize up while I was sitting in the chair. Oh. You may have, you may have picked up a little different in my, <laughs> in my demeanor up there. Oh. You know, I was, uh, I was thinking. Oh. About the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer is a device that does what? A thermometer simply, it does nothing but reflects its environment. That's all it does. It reflects its environment. Correct? That's all it does. Whatever's going on in the environment, the thermometer will show, will show that in a reading. A thermostat, and we have two in here, actually controls. It sets the temperature. It sets the temperature. A thermometer reflects it. A thermostat controls it. It has an impact. And I say all that to say this. 
Christians. You can be a thermometer or you can be a thermostat. Right? You can be a thermometer and just reflect what's going on in the culture around you. You're no different. You're no different than anyone else. You look just like everyone else. Or you can be a thermostat. You know what? Thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. These are His standards. These are His principles. These are His values. And they influence my life. Right? We have to take a stand, don't we? We have to take a stand. Either you are a thermometer or you're a thermostat. Hopefully, you are a thermostat. But only you know. I'm glad you're here this morning. I hope I hope today's message spoke to you. In spite of my sore back <laughs> that's easing up on me as I speak. <laughs> We're all right. We're all right. Maybe the Lord has convicted your heart that maybe you are a thermometer. You need to make that right. You need to get right with Him. As you see, we're going to be taking Lord's Supper this morning. And before we do so, sometimes we need to evaluate our own lives, take an inventory of our own, our own lives. Where do we stand? What are we doing? What do I need to confess? What do I got to make right? Sometimes we have to do that. How the Lord's leading you? I just, I would just, I would just pray that you respond to Him however He wants you to respond. If you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you. Absolutely love to have you. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would love to introduce you to Him. He loves you dearly. He loves you dearly. So however, however the Lord responds to you, just be obedient and respond to Him.